morning and welcome to Renaissance Church. My name is Christian. Yes. Awesome. Thank you. I'm so glad you're here. If you are a visitor, welcome, and I hope that you find the time that you chose to spend with us helpful for you. If you're a person who's here each week, it is a great pleasure for me to be with you this morning especially. We've been practicing the art of seeing Jesus together. We've been helped by some of the classic artists, especially from uh, the Renaissance period and after, and that will be what we do again this morning. We've been choosing to focus our attention especially on the events that unfolded from the time that Jesus was betrayed in the garden by Judas up and through the time of his resurrection, which we'll see next week and the week after. This morning, we come to what many would regard as the most important, uh, one of the most important historical events in human history, and that is the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, of course, Christians have a very special understanding of the significance of this event, but even those who don't regard it as theologically significant would have to admit that Western civilization has been disproportionately shaped by this one execution of a Jewish rabbi uh, it's remarkable how much human history has been changed by this. We Christians believe that's because of the actual significance of what happened there, which is beyond just an execution. But what I want you to see this morning as we look at this scene is, is very simple. Everything comes down to how you decide about Jesus. What we'll see is that the way Luke depicts the crucifixion is especially designed to put Jesus between two men, two criminals who are crucified there with him. And what distinguishes the two from one another is how they decide about Jesus. And what I want to put before all of us this morning, uh, before those of us who've made decisions about Jesus already, as well as before those who maybe have not, is that the most important thing in life or death is how you decide about Jesus. And I know that not everyone agrees with this, but I want to tell you why I say this. Listen, the decision we make about Jesus, about how to look at him, about how to either receive or block the light that comes from him, about how we'll understand ourselves in relationship to him personally, is the most critical decision for life and death that anyone can make. I do not mean the decision that we make about a denomination or about some theological ideas that people like to fight about, or about the ethical issues that religious people get angry at each other over, all of those things can be set aside. I don't mean a decision about the style of church that you like best. None of that is, is primary. I mean very simply, how will you decide about Jesus? The thing about Jesus is that when he walked through life day in and day out, he did not just want to teach men and women good things. He did that. Uh, he did not just want to enlighten them or give them the kind of guidance that would help life be better than it was. He wanted that. But what he really wanted was for men and women to decide about him. Like this. Like you're going through life on a path and you come to a fork in the road. What Jesus wanted is for every man and woman, and even those among us who are not yet men and women, children, to stand there at the fork in the road and then decide, which way am I going to go? Am I going to walk through life with Jesus or not? And that was all throughout his life and even up to the very end, which we'll see this morning. As Jesus is crucified between two men who are distinguished from one another based on the decisions they make about him. I want you to look at this image here. This is an etching 
that was created by the Dutch master, many of whom regard as the best artist in the history of art, Rembrandt. Ever heard of him? Rembrandt was a master draftsman. He was a master painter, and that's mostly what we see of his work, but he also was a master at this medium, etching. Many regard him as the best in the whole history of this particular medium. Etching, I'm going to describe it for you. Etching is a process where an artist takes a metal plate and then covers it with a thin veil of wax. Then with a, a sharp instrument, scrapes the wax away from the metal, exposing it, so that when the entire thing is submerged in acid, the acid burns the parts of the metal that are exposed, leaving the other parts smooth, and then the artist will remove the wax, and those rough places will hold ink, which the artist can then use to make prints. And, and many would say that Rembrandt was the best. Uh, in addition to this process of acid and wax, Rembrandt, after removing the wax, used a needle to scrape additional details into the metal. That's called dry point. And this particular plate of, of Rembrandt's is one of the ones that is the most interesting to art historians, whether they have faith or not, and largely because of how it reveals the process over time of how an artist can take a plate like this and continue to manipulate it to make new prints. And that's what Rembrandt did. This is one of the first versions of it in 1653, but throughout the next years and decade even, he came back to it again and again. Now, when researching this print, which you can find at the Met, you can go see it with your own eyes, and it is a thousand times better than what it looks like here in person. When researching it, what you'll find is that the art critics often describe this scene, let's zoom in for a moment, in terms of the three figures who rise to prominence over the other details. It's called the three crosses, and what art critics will say is, this is a picture of Jesus crucified between two criminals. On his left hand is the bad criminal. Left is the traditional spot that is, is not as good as right, and if you're a lefty, sorry, too bad. But left is sinister. And then they'll say, on the left side is the bad criminal, on the right side is, help me here, the good criminal, which is as wrong as it is common because in the New Testament, there is no such thing as a good criminal. There's only bad. This is not Jesus between a good man and a bad man. It is Jesus between two bad men, both of whom are criminals. And I pause here knowing that art critics are way better at describing etching in the history of Rembrandt than I am, but on this point, they have actually missed the mark, which is so brilliantly captured in black and white. And, and Rembrandt followed Van Honthorst as he followed Caravaggio in this art of bringing light and dark together. But on this, in this scene, the light and dark come together not to show us a good criminal light and a bad criminal dark, but two bad criminals who are crucified on either side of the one good man in this scene. And the point is critical for this reason. And this is what I want you to see this morning. What distinguishes the two criminals is not their history, that one has done more good than the other, but rather the decisions that they make in this moment about the man on the center cross. And that's what everything comes down to. How will you decide about Jesus? How will you? I'm, th I'm thinking of you now, and I want you to think of yourself. How will you decide about Jesus? Jesus. 
If we go to the Gospel of Luke, all of the Gospel writers write about Jesus' crucifixion. The Gospel of Luke has a particularly detailed picture of this scene here where Jesus is between the two criminals. If we go there, we get the opportunity to overhear what they say as Jesus is on the verge of dying. This is the last conversation in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus gets to be a part of. And so it's significant for that reason, but it also gives us a very clear picture of the decisions that these two men make and their distinctions. I want to start with the criminal that is on Jesus' left hand, and in the image, that's on the right side, the one who's bathed in light. Listen to how Luke describes his speech at the end of his life. This is in verse 39 of Luke 23. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him, that is Jesus, and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. So now at this scene, at the foot of the cross, there are many people who are there because they want to see the spectacle unfold, and that's the only reason they're there. A public execution in this environment was a sort of sick and twisted form of entertainment for the masses. They wanted to see these men expire, and so some people were there. And for many of them, it was a joke. And we know for sure, in Jesus' case, that there were men and women who made light of what was happening. In this moment, between these two criminals, Jesus has to overhear the man on his left side adding his taunts to the chorus of voices when he asks a fake question, are you not the Messiah? It's a fake question because he doesn't really want to know This is the criminal's way of saying, you are so obviously not the one that everyone hoped you were. Messiah is a Hebrew word. It's a word that means anointed one. For the people to whom Jesus came, there was, for them, there was a very long-held hope that one day God would finally send someone to deliver them. And, And many of us will know, whatever we think about God, the deep desire to have some kind of deliverance from the places we find ourselves in our lives. Uh, For you, it might be personal, or it might even be the state of this world, which is so utterly crazy. You look at it, and you think, we need to be delivered. In Jesus' day, there was a hope for that, and it came under the name Messiah. For generations, in fact, the prophets had spoke of a man who would one day come to deliver his people, and he would do that with power and strength and might as he came and freed the captives and took the prisoners out of their imprisonment and set people at ease and free. And the followers of Jesus had begun to regard him in that way, with that hope. But now in this moment, think of it, everyone sees Jesus nailed to the cross. He does not look much like a deliverer. And so the criminal on his left says, are you not the Messiah? Aren't you supposed to be the one who sets prisoners free? Now you're a prisoner. And then he asks, or then he demands, excuse me, he demands, look at the second part of what he says, Save yourself and us. He envisions Jesus coming down from the cross if he has so much power, and then as he saves himself, using his power to save others. What he does not know is what any attentive reader of the Gospel of Luke will have picked up. And some of you in here have read the the Gospels as many times or way more than I have, and others maybe haven't. But what you know is that in this statement, save yourself and us, there is a perfect irony. Because the way that the Bible says Jesus is going to save others as the Messiah is by refusing to save himself. You could dwell on this for a bit. 
As some of you know, Jesus announced that he was the one who had come to give his life as a ransom for many. That means I will save others by choosing not to save myself. And it wasn't just Jesus who spoke like this. Those who began to see him and watch his ministry unfold began to regard him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Another image that says this man is going to save others by choosing not to save himself. And now do you see the irony in what this criminal says? He cannot get what he asks for because if Jesus chooses to save himself, he will not save others. Behind this dynamic of exchange between the servant of God and the guilty man is the long-held hope for a servant who would come and save the people as he suffered for them. Some of you will know the prophet Isaiah. And in the 53rd chapter of that ancient prophecy, it was foretold that the way that God would save his people was by sending a servant who would be rejected in order to save others. Now listen to these words and tell me if they don't sound like the man on the middle cross. This is Isaiah 53, 3 through 5. He was despised and rejected by others. A man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom we hid our faces, he was despised. We held him of no account. That is, when you look at him with ordinary eyes, he looks like a failure. But then the prophet goes on to say, And surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. We accounted him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. By his bruises we are healed. The prophet here declares that there will be a deliverer, but the way he will save others is by refusing to save himself. He will receive the punishment which belongs to the one who is nailed right beside him. He will be wounded for the transgression of the one who is nailed right beside him. He will be held captive so the other can go free. Now, of course, in this moment, what Luke wants us to see is this first criminal's decision about Jesus is plain. He's decided that Jesus is a failure. And the reason for that decision, and it comes through in the irony of his question, is that in this moment, he's unable to see what's actually happening. He cannot see the meaning of the death of this one in the, on the center cross. He's blind. And because of that, his decision about Jesus means nothing. I want you to look again with me for a moment at the detail in Rembrandt's depiction of this criminal first, the one whose words we just read on the right side of the image on Jesus' left hand, this first criminal, is cast in a very direct way. You'll notice first that he is bathed in light that shines upon him from above. It's very obvious, isn't it? It's like one of those days when the sun is setting through the clouds and you think, how could light ever do that where it comes through the beams? Have you ever seen a moment like that? In this moment, Rembrandt has depicted this criminal as if there is light from heaven shining right on his face. He's completely enveloped in light. And I want you to notice a second thing about him. His face is tilted upward as if it is directed toward heaven itself. You see, his posture puts him in, a, in, in such a manner that he has his eyes directed toward heaven as if that would be the place where he could see God. But do you notice something peculiar about his face? I know it might be hard to see from where you sit. 
but you cannot make out any features around his eyes, and that's because Rembrandt has chosen to depict him with a rag draped over his eyes. Can you make it out? Help me, because I can't see anything. Yeah. There's no mention of a rag on his eyes in the Bible, but Rembrandt takes the artistic license that was his as an interpreter of these events. When he shows a man, listen, who even though the light from heaven is shining down upon him, and even though he puts his face toward God, still cannot see what's happening. And the way that, that Rembrandt captures this symbolically is covering his eyes up. As if to say, there are some men and there are some women who can have everything that is required to make a decision about Jesus to see who he really is, and yet they still won't see. And of course, this raises lots of questions. And there's no attempt to answer them in this story. And I won't try to answer that question either. But what I will say is here, I think the artist has done something magnificent. He shows us a man who's altogether covered in light, who's looking where he would have to look, but he still cannot see. He's blind. I think that's Rembrandt's way of saying, this man who thinks that Jesus is a failure is blind. He has no idea what he's talking about. That's the criminal on the left side. Look with me at the criminal on the right. Because here's a, here's a figure who's cast in a very different way. You'll see it more dramatically when you look at the whole piece together. But notice, the light does not fall full upon him. In fact, he's in the shadows. He's way, way more dark than light. Here, Rembrandt is saying an emphatic no to everyone who sees this as a good criminal. He's a bad criminal, just like everyone who gets a public execution in this environment, except for the man in the middle cross. This is a bad man. His face is dark. His grimace is foreboding and, and frightening even. But do you notice you can see his eyes? Even though he's in the shadows, he still can see. He still has the capacity to look and see what's happening. And, and, and you'll have to use your memory here, but the first criminal's arms were drooping limp at his side, but this man's hands are lifted up. Even though his face isn't directed toward heaven, his hands are. And many of you will know that it is a posture of acknowledging the authority and power of God to raise one's hands to heaven. And I, it, no one can say for sure, but it seems to me an, an awful likely decision on Rembrandt's part to put this man in the dark but with his hands up. And there is one part of his figure which is brilliant and bathed in light. It's small, but it means a lot. Do you see what it is? It's his right hand. And the right hand is the hand of fellowship. It's the hand that one person uses to reach out to another human being when they want to say to that person, I want to be connected to you. I want to make a promise. That's, what we, that's why we shake right hands. It's always been like that. I want to extend my affection to you. And this right hand of this bad criminal is bathed in light from heaven. And here again, the distinction between him and the other man is not a matter of their earthly deeds. It's a matter of the decision that this second criminal has made about Jesus, the one on his right hand. And that we also get to see in the Gospel of Luke. Because it's not only the criminal who derides Jesus whose words we get to hear, but Luke records the words of the second man, who in the 23rd chapter of Luke begins by addressing not Jesus, but by addressing the first man to speak. 
And look at what he says to the first criminal. After this first criminal derides Jesus and mocks him for being such a failure, the second criminal, verse 40, but the other rebuked him. And that means he strongly disagreed with what this man had voiced, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the sentence, the same sentence of condemnation? Now let me unfold the meaning here. He knows, the second criminal, that all three of them are under the same sentence of condemnation, which means before the day is out, all of them will die. And he's thinking of that. And now he's thinking of what this first man has said, and he's thinking, it's awfully absurd to not take this moment more seriously. Because the fact is, we're going to die soon. And, now not everyone here will agree with this, but everyone here will have to agree with the first fact. One day, every one of us will face death. We don't know when it is. We hope it's a long way off. Some of us are like, nah, I've lived a long life. I'm ready to go. <laughs> Seriously, that happens when you get older. I, can't, I don't hear any amens because you're like, I don't even need to say any amen. <laughs> All of us will one day face death. But this second criminal is thinking about what happens after death. And not everyone agrees with this, but everyone in that environment would have known. They would have trusted this that this is an earthly judgment, the dying on the cross, it's nothing compared to what comes after the earthly judgment, which is that every man and every woman will stand before the almighty God in the presence of the pure, holy, infinite, divine, transcendent power of goodness and will stand in judgment based on what they chose to do with the life that they've been given. And this second criminal is thinking of that moment. And he's afraid. And he's thinking to the, about the first criminal. He should be afraid too. And would you picture it for a moment, whatever you believe about what happens after death, imagine that the moment your body goes is not the end, but there is some divine reckoning where you stand responsible for what you made of the life that you lived. This second criminal is thinking of that moment and he's afraid. And he's saying to the first man, you should be afraid too. Because we stand under the same sentence of condemnation. Look at what he goes on to say. This is in verse 41. And we, indeed, have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Two things. He looks at himself and the other criminal on the far side and thinks, we deserve this, and that's one of the main reasons why we should be afraid. But then he thinks of the man in the center cross, and he says of Jesus. He's done nothing wrong. He's innocent. And I want you to understand this. You'll know this if you've read the Gospel of Luke carefully. This is the last person who speaks about and to Jesus before he dies in the Gospel of Luke. And in the entire narrative that we've read of what happens after Jesus' friends betray him, his, his closest companion betrays him with a kiss, all of his friends run away. Then when he's on trial before the religious authorities, they all tell lies about him and Jesus doesn't defend himself. Then Peter, who promised to die before he abandoned Jesus, three times pretends he doesn't know Jesus. And that whole time, up until this moment, no one comes to his defense. And yet here is the first person in the narrative who comes to Jesus' defense at this moment to say, he's innocent, he hasn't done anything wrong, and he's a criminal. How would it feel to be Jesus in this moment? to have your prime defender, the only one who's got the guts to speak up for your innocence, be someone else who's dying with you. And the man does it, listen, because he's made a decision about Jesus. 
The man on the left side made a decision about Jesus. Failure. No hope there. The man on the right side has made a different decision about Jesus. And that's why he speaks up to defend Jesus in this moment. And now I want to set the narrative aside for a moment. I want to ask this question imaginatively. Think of it. Why did he make this decision about Jesus? What was it about the man on the center cross that made this criminal regard him as he did? Here, the moment that they're dying there is not the first moment that they've been together. You know that because they were executed together that day, it meant that they were with each other from the morning forward. You can read the details at the beginning of, of, of Luke 23, but in the morning, when they were all together, there was the trial that Jesus faced before Pilate and the many, many thousands of people that were crowded together in Jerusalem that morning. If you know the details, this is going to be review for you. But what happened then is Pilate interviewed Jesus, and after meeting with him, with the other criminals watching, Pilate said, I find no charge against this man. He's innocent. He turned Jesus over to Herod, who was the king of the Jews. Herod passes him back to Pilate, and then two more times, with the entire crowd of people there, Pilate says, look, I'm sorry, I cannot... I cannot execute this man in good conscience. I find no charge against him. And yet the crowd shouted more fervently, crucify him, crucify him. And the criminal had to watch while that morning, this man in the center cross was accused by his own people for doing something which he didn't do and then condemned to death. And the entire time, the innocent man Jesus did nothing to defend himself. Can you imagine witnessing that up close? Would that have made an impression on you? That's the first thing that this criminal had seen. An innocent man accused and condemned by his own people, though he had done nothing. They leave that place where the trial is held and they begin to march up the hill that leaves Jerusalem behind and goes to the place called the skull where Jesus will be crucified. Here's the second thing that the criminal saw. And I want you to use your imagination again. As they walk up the, the winding hill with crowds of people on either side, many of whom are just there for the spectacle, the cries and wails of a group of women can be heard in the distance. As they get closer, everyone can see that it's a group of women who had a special love for Jesus. They, their affection for him, because of his kindness and his grace as their teacher, caused them in this moment to be so utterly overwhelmed with grief that their sobs and their wails quieted the rest of the crowd as they, they wept for their, their beloved Jesus. Everyone saw it. And Jesus, on the way, stopped and turned to address them. And now the criminal is seeing the second thing. Imagine this. He looks at these women crying and he says, daughters of Jerusalem. It's a tender way of saying, my dear beloved friends. He says, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. What's coming for you is going to be far worse than what's coming for me. This is not a positive statement. What he means to say is, I am going up this hill to face an execution that is human judgment. But those who are carrying out this wickedness against me and are choosing not to stand with me are going to face a divine judgment that will be way worse than the one that I'm about to face. And you should be weeping for yourself and for everyone who's apart from me rather than for me. That is really heavy, don't you think? Now, whatever you think about this whole story, imagine you're that criminal and you've heard the man next to you say that and now you're thinking about yourself because you don't have the ability, like many people will, to say, well, I've done nothing wrong in life. You're guilty and you know it. 
Now you're walking beside this innocent man who's just pointed to the terror that's going to come in divine judgment. That's the second thing that this criminal had seen. Here's the third. This is the most important. There are no other words from Jesus for a bit as they nail his hands to the cross and his feet too. And they do the same to the other criminals. And now they hoist them up in front of this crowd of onlookers. And then the silence is broken when Jesus says the word Father. And he says it loud enough for the people around him to hear. And now everyone in the crowd knows that here's this man who's about to die and what he's doing is he's praying to God, his Father. You must remember, Jesus regarded God as his Father and himself as the Son of God. His followers believed he had a close and special relationship with God, that he could ask God the Father anything at all and God would do it. And now the criminal hears this man call out to the Father and he must have wondered, what is Jesus going to ask for now that he's talking to God? Will he ask his heavenly Father to send the angels which he could send down to destroy all of us? Is that what he'll pray for? But his ears hear Jesus say, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is, the criminal on the right hand saw an innocent man who was accused for a crime he didn't commit by his own people who refused to defend himself, praying for mercy for the very people who were killing him asking his heavenly father to have mercy on the man who was nailing the the nails into his hands, for the soldiers who were dividing his clothes, for the man who held up a sponge soaked in sour wine to mock his thirst, for the, the, the onlookers who wanted to be entertained by his demise, for the criminal on one side who mocked him, and for the criminal on the other hand, who up until this point hadn't said anything. But in that moment when this man saw Jesus asking for mercy for all of them, something in him definitively broke and changed altogether. So now he was ready to make a decision about Jesus. And here, (laughs) Jesus wants you to make a decision about him. That's what he wants. He didn't come to just teach some things or to give some good advice or to set a good example. Of course, he came to do that. But more importantly, he came to stand at the fork in the road for every man and woman and say, which way are you going to go? And the mercy of of Jesus Christ is for everyone, every single person. It's not for good criminals. It's for all people. I want you to see the texture of this man's decision, this second criminal, and what he says when he turns away from the first criminal to speak directly to Jesus. This is the last sentence that is spoken to Jesus by a person before he dies in the Gospel of Luke. This is verse 42. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There are three things in this single sentence that reveal the decision that this man has made about Jesus. Your kingdom means that this man has decided the person who's being crucified beside me is the king. It's not Caesar. It's not Herod. It's not me. It's not any person other than the man who's beside me. Jesus Christ is king, and not just king in general. He is my king, and that is the first part of this man's decision that you must see. He's decided to say, I will deny myself. I will regard the man beside me as the true king of all. He is the king. It is his kingdom, and I've come to the place where I see that, and I've decided to regard him in that way. That is a decision first that he has made. Secondly, he asks Jesus to remember him. This is a decision that says my only hope is the mercy of God. 
That's what it means to ask Jesus in this moment to remember him. He's just heard Jesus ask God for mercy for everyone, and now he's thinking about the moment when he'll stand before the judgment of God, and he knows his only hope is that Jesus will remember also to speak of him to his heavenly father. If it's up to him, he's doomed. He's got no hope at all. He will forever have to face the wrath of divine judgment for his mistakes in this life because he's a dark, dark person who's hid in the shadows by what he's done all his life long. And so he says, Jesus, remember me because he means when you stand before the father, would you ask him for mercy for me just like you asked for mercy for, for, for everyone else, please? That's the second decision he's made. The third decision is difficult to see unless you're a very careful reader. Look at how he addressed Jesus. It just says Jesus. You see it? If you read the entire New Testament carefully, you will see that this is the one and only time where any person ever addresses Jesus simply with his first name, Jesus. No one else in all of the Bible ever dares to address Jesus with that level of familiarity. His, his disciples call him Rabbi Jesus. They call him Jesus, son of man or son of God. They call him Jesus, my king and my God. They always amend to his name. They append some other title beside it. But this is the most familiar and the most friendly way that Jesus is ever addressed. And it's a criminal right before he dies. And this means the third part of his decision is, I've decided to trust that this man beside me will have me as a dear friend that he's my king and that he'll have mercy on me and that I can be a friend who dares to call him by his first name, Jesus. And he does. And now I want to ask you about you. What keeps you from making this decision about Jesus? I'm not just speaking to people who've never decided to trust Jesus as their king and to ask him for mercy and to have him as a friend. I am talking to you. If you've never made that decision, I'm asking you, what keeps you from making that decision? I'm also asking those of you who've made it already because we need to make it again and again. Why won't you? And I hope, there's, I hope the answer for you is I, I will. Maybe you'll think, I still have a lot of theological questions. That's fine. This is not a question about all of the theological answers that you might have. This is a question about Jesus. What's your decision about him? Someone else will think, well, uh, I don't want to be associated with people who call themselves Christians. I see all the wicked and evil things that they do in the world. I watch it on news all the time. You know what? I sometimes don't want to be associated with them either. Uh, it's not a question about them. It's a question about Jesus. Why don't you decide like this about him? Right? Someone else will say, I've been too bad. You don't know. Okay, nonsense. The criminals are bad. Why don't you make this decision about him? Someone else will think I'm too good. I don't need to make a decision like that. I'm not a criminal. I pray that God will cause you to search your own conscience so that you see yourself standing before him after death and you're afraid. I'm serious. Not because I want you to be afraid, but because I want you to decide I need him. This is the question. What about making this decision about him? It's the most important decision that you can make for life and for death. And if you will make it, as this criminal did, listen, what you'll find is that you are totally and utterly free from fear from now on. From any fear in life and especially from fear in death. I want to tell you this story. Do some of you know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Have some of you heard that name? Yeah. If you haven't, he was a magnificent man. I grew up and had faith in Jesus. Believed that Jesus was his king. 
believed that he needed mercy from Jesus, believed that Jesus would call him friend. He was a genius. He studied theology in Germany. He became so brilliantly successful that when he was 21, he wrote his dissertation, which some called a theological miracle. Everybody wanted this guy to teach at their universities. He was brought over to New York City where he began to teach theology in the late 30s. And at the time that he was there, the war broke out. And in Germany, he'd heard that the German Christians had colluded with Hitler and began to persecute the Jews in the name of Christ. He was so incensed that anyone could do such a thing, he left his post in New York City where he had a great job to go back into Germany to stand up against the Nazis. A lot of people said, don't do this. It's not worth it. You're going to get in trouble. He got in trouble. He was arrested and he was imprisoned. And in the 40s, he found himself in Flossenburg, one of the concentration camps. There in 1945, right as the war was right on the edge of ending, he found himself imprisoned with others who had the courage to stand up to the Nazis. And in that prison camp, he became, in those days of his imprisonment, he became a bright light and a joy to everybody who met him, including the prison guards who held him. In fact, he became a pastor for them because he believed that Jesus was the friend not only of him, but of, of everyone, even the perpetrators of such wickedness. And listen, we know about his last days because there were prisoners who were there with him, who were freed, who wrote about what happened. And on April 8th in 1945, that was a Sunday, the anniversary of that day was yesterday. The following events occurred and are recorded by an English officer. Listen to this. Bonhoeffer always seemed to me to spread an atmosphere of happiness and joy over the least incident and profound gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. He was one of the very few persons I've ever met for whom God was real and always near. I, I think that observation came from the fact that Bonhoeffer had made the decisions that he had made about Jesus. The decision, the decision that the man on Jesus' right side made here. On Sunday, April 8th, 1945, that was yesterday, back in 1945, Pastor Bonhoeffer conducted a little service of worship and spoke to us in a way that went to the heart of all of us. He found just the right words to express the spirit of our imprisonment and the thoughts and resolutions it had brought us. He'd hardly ended his last prayer when the door opened and two civilians entered. They said, prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. That had only one meeting for all prisoners, the gallows. We said goodbye to him. He took me aside this is the end, but for me, it is the beginning of life. The next day, he was hanged in Flossenburg. He died just three days before the prison was liberated, and that was on April 9th, which is today. The text on which Bonhoeffer spoke on that last day was Isaiah 53, which I read earlier, by his stripes we are healed. You make a decision about Jesus to regard him as king, to know that you need his mercy and to ask for it, and then to trust in his eternal friendship, and you are free. You are free to face death as only an end, which is really the true beginning of life. And when you make that decision about Jesus, I want you to listen to Jesus' decision about that prisoner. In verse 43, after this man says what he does to Jesus, Jesus replies, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
And that means Jesus decided that he wanted this man with him forever. He wanted to give this man his own friendship eternally. And that was the decision that comes not just for this man, but for all people. And you are invited now to simply decide, as this criminal did, to regard Jesus as your king and to ask him for mercy and to receive his eternal friendship. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that in Christ you've come to set us free and that your decision to set us free, even though it meant that you yourself would be imprisoned, was not too great, but rather your love moved you to give yourself for us in Christ. I thank you that you've given yourself for all of us, for both criminals. God, I pray that none of us would have the light coming upon us but still be blind. Give us the will and the strength to remove whatever keeps us from seeing you so that we can see the truth of your love for us. And then help us accept the fact that you have decided in love to give yourself even for people like us. God, whatever guilt it is that makes us afraid, would you help us see your strong and capable hands taking it away from us so that we are free, so that we can trust that you've chosen to give yourself even for someone like us. I pray that this would come and free us in Jesus' name.